This week we're going to be ramping up and finishing off the musculoskeletal disorders with the condition of fractures. Some are definitely worse than others, but there's always something that you can do and something that you should look for. Welcome back to Bushcraft Health and Wellness. Welcome to Bushcraft Health and Wellness, the podcast for anyone who spends time outdoors that wants to learn about staying healthy with wellness and preparedness. If you want to keep the high stoke, full send adventures going for years to come, you need to start with the basics because we all want to stay well, play hard, and recover fast. And I want to help you lay a good foundation through memorable stories and helpful tips. I'm Mandy, and when I'm not traveling across the country living out of my Jeep, I'm working as a nurse and planning my next adventure, and I want to share everything I know with you. In addition to new episodes every week, I also create a summary sheet with all of the main points. So check out the show notes for that, plus all of the great source materials. So buckle in and let's go. Quick disclaimer, this podcast does not replace medical advice from a doctor. You should talk to your primary care physician before making any changes to medications or treatments. This podcast also does not take the place of wilderness first aid, CPR, or any other medical training, which are recommended. I make my best attempt to be as up-to-date and accurate as possible, but I am human and make mistakes. Medical content and descriptions of sometimes gory situations may be more adult in nature. Listener discretion is advised. So let's talk fractures. Fractures in austere environments are not just very possible, sometimes probable, but potentially very problematic as well. Finger fractures, just for a small example, don't really require much treatment as long as circulation and nerves are okay. You can usually get by with just buddy taping it to the next finger and continuing on your way. More or less the same goes for toes. Okay, so that's fingers. That's great. But let's back up a second. Since bones provide structure for you to be able to stand up and carry things and like act as a very vital physical protection for your soft internal organs, then when they break, they're not able to provide that same protection. And now they're kind of acting as a sharp, unstable edge with the potential to puncture, rip, or shred those surrounding organs, muscles, vessels, and nerves. So as a big example, let's look at the pelvis. The pelvis is a very large bone with a circular structure that has organs, vessels, and arteries within it that are very vulnerable to injury when the pelvis is compromised. One of the best things you can do for any fracture is to splint it in place and evacuate quickly, especially if it's a high-risk fracture. Consider rib fractures. They aren't really at the bottom end near fingers and toes, but they're not quite as severe as a pelvis fracture. However, they also can't really be casted and they're very painful. So they really leave the patient at risk for a bunch of different complications if something is to go wrong. Likely it won't happen, but they could also not breathe in deep enough and then they're at risk for poor oxygenation, poor breathing, not enough air, so hypoxia essentially. And this can also lead to them developing pneumonia very easily, but also they could get a punctured lung or a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. So yeah, you kind of run the gambit from 
mostly mildly annoying and uncomfortable and painful all the way up to a blood clot in your lungs which is a medical emergency and you can die. Same with a punctured lung. Generally that's not very good. So yes, really you might be frustrated that you went home and went to a hospital and were told, yep, you got some fractured ribs, go home and rest it off. But you also don't want to be isolated away from medical care and have any of the conditions that I mentioned happen. Additionally, fractures of larger bones also carry higher risks of embolisms from blood, which I mentioned, or something called a fat embolism. And really this comes from the bone marrow that is contained within your bigger bones. It can be released into the bloodstream and all of a sudden is this little globule of fatty tissue that can lodge itself someplace it's not supposed to be and cut off circulation to that area. It is possible to realign an angulated fracture out in the field, but it's usually really not recommended unless you're a trained professional or you could risk damage to life and limb or if there is risk of damage to life or limb happening if you do not straighten it. I'm going to clear that up in just a second. That was a little confusing, but as usual, there are a bunch of criteria we're going to look at. So first, let's just go over some simple vocabulary that I'm going to be using. So realignment is a gentle realignment of a long bone, usually using slight traction. Once again, not recommended unless necessary because you usually need a provider. Angulated is just a phrase that you use to describe a bone that is no longer in anatomical position or also known as it is out of natural alignment. It is now angulated. An angulated fracture can cause a lot of damage to nerves, vessels, muscles, etc. And swelling can further complicate the problem, making splinting difficult in most cases and nerves and vessels can also get torn or damaged in the process if you're trying to splint it incorrectly or if you're trying to realign it before you splint. So that is one thing that needs to be considered. Here's a few general rules for realignment. Here's the one that you know is coming. If you are more than two hours from care and the extremity is unstable but it can move independently, it's easily straightened, and the angulation precludes stable splinting for evacuation and there is diminished distal CSM. So the circulation, the, the sensation, or the motion are compromised. You should not ever realign if you meet resistance while moving the extremity or if there is sudden increase in pain during the realignment. Some pain is expected, but if all of a sudden it is unbearable and just out of this world disproportionate, stop immediately and consider that there's something else going on. An open fracture is a open break in the skin, usually from the bone poking through it, and is very much more complex. A contaminated fracture is at high risk for infection and also bleeding. 
Treatment for a contaminated fracture is early high pressure irrigation with one to three liters of potable or clean water and then apply moistened sterile dressing or clean if that's all you have to the open wounds and exposed bone. You should change this dressing every 24 hours if you are unable to get them back to care immediately. If concurrent angulation exists, irrigate before attempting realignment. So this means if you have decided that realignment is your best and or maybe only option and you have a open contaminated wound all at the same time so there's bone sticking through and there's like dirt on it and it's gross instead of just shoving all that dirt into the wound and realigning it first irrigate it before you do that also whenever you can splint with a quote-unquote window to the site so what this means is you want to splint it with the open area not under any hard external dressing. So if you do use like sticks or hiking poles or something like that to splint the area, you want to position them so that the open area is only covered with gauze or some sort of soft dressing. You don't want that hard external force over the top of the most tender, most damaged area. Some evacuation criteria to consider are that you should rapidly evacuate all open fractures, rapidly evacuate all fractures that result in a compromised or loss of distal circulation sensation and motion, and in general, basic evacuation for all suspected fractures. If it is like a finger or a toe and you can buddy tape it together and they have no problem with that and they want to continue and that CSM is intact and everything looks okay, that is up to you and the patient to decide. So keep that in mind. You don't necessarily have to evacuate for a very minor finger fracture, but you should definitely still consider it and consider the things that you are going to need to do with that finger and that it might be painful like if you need to rock climb at some point after a finger fracture consider the fact that it might make it considerably more hazardous and once again special consideration should be given to those with bleeding disorders or those who are on blood thinners especially if it is a open or already bleeding wound but even if it's not, remember that there could be internal bleeding happening that you just can't see. So let's talk a little bit about special considerations here before we move on to the individual locations. So remember open fractures are those where the bone has punctured through the skin. Usually, usually that's what causes it. So there's a wound over the break. If medical care is less than eight hours away and you have assessed the circulation, sensation, and motion so you know that there's proper function and blood flow is okay, then the bone, and if, I guess, the bone is not too severely angulated or deformed, you can merely splint it in place and evacuate rapidly. So if the bone is sticking through and everything feels okay, they have pulses, their skin is warm, 
and they can feel your touch and they can move the fingers. Now granted that might be really hard if they are in significant pain and it's a crazy break but if it is possible and it's really just barely poking through it's just a little off kilter and it's not like a 90 degree angle from where it should be that is what this means and you can get to care within eight hours you can just splint it as it is and work on evacuation rather than wasting time trying to fix it and then evacuating so if medical care is more than eight hours away and you have assessed their CSM you can consider irrigating the wound with clean pressure irrigation so this means that clean water and you're going to use your water bottle or some sort of like spray nozzle maybe a plastic bag with a hole poked in it something that you can squeeze to get a little bit of pressure and force behind that irrigation stream don't use any additives you don't really need to do that it can be irritating to the skin and the wound remember so in this case just plain clean water and as much pressure irrigation as the patient is able to tolerate remembering not to use pressure irrigation if the wound cannot drain properly so you do not want to be just shooting a stream of water directly into their open arm you need to know that it's going to be able to drain out reasonably so that you're not making a lovely little swimming pool for all of the bacteria that's in there next we're going to talk a little bit about compartment syndrome i am going to touch a bit more on this in the burn unit but basically compartment syndrome is when swelling edema or any number of other factors cause an increase in pressure in the muscle of an extremity that grows so large that it cuts off normal circulation and nerve function to that extremity so this is kind of you might be able to think of it as a natural tourniquet it is not quite exactly the same obviously there's not just one focused area that is cutting off all the blood flow and these can actually be a little more dangerous because if they only cut off that arterial or that venous flow first but the arterial blood is still deliverable so that means that the blood is still able to be pumped through the arteries down into the limb because those are a lot more forceful and a lot hardier but the veins and all of the little capillaries and all that have been cut off from the pressure now this blood is all pooling down there and is growing and there's no way for it to escape or return so you're at increased risk for blood clots and also increased risk for pretty much exponential pressure growth until at least the arteries are cut off as well because there's not a release for this pressure that's building up but it's still coming in so there's essentially a one-way valve it can get in but it can't get out and this is kind of a similar concept that you get when you apply a tourniquet incorrectly and there's not enough force so you kind of have a partial pressure tourniquet so usually this compartment syndrome is more common in the lower arm or lower leg 
Symptoms are usually severe pain that seems a little disproportionate to the injury. Maybe there's a tight feel to the muscles of that limb and it gets worse when you apply pressure. And maybe there's decreased sensation to the touch and pain with passive stretching. Now, you might not know what all of those mean. You might not remember all of them. And it really doesn't matter if they only have like four of the five or however many there are. If they have general symptoms that kind of sound like that, probably the first ones that you're going to notice are the severe pain that might seem a little disproportionate and a very tight feel to the muscles or the limb. You will probably also see a lack of pulse, paleness below the level of the injury, slow capillary refill, remember that's when you squeeze on either their finger or their toe just so that you can see how quickly that blood returns after it blanches white. And those are all signs of a later, more progressive compartment syndrome. And they're very bad because that means it has moved beyond the normal level of the beginning of stages. And now it's in its later stages, which basically mean that blood flow is restricted to a point where you should be concerned. Treatment is to rapidly evacuate before you get to the point of the ominous signs. Preferring treatment before six to eight hours at the latest. And do not wrap or bandage this limb in any way because you're only going to be adding to the pressure that is cutting off that blood flow. And also the same can occur if you try and elevate the limb. That's not really going to help that much and it just makes it harder for the blood that has oxygen in it to get down there. So just try and keep it at heart level and try and maximize the beneficial blood flow that you need. In a medical setting, this treatment or this condition is usually treated with something called a fasciotomy or in the case of burns, it's called an escarotomy. And basically this means is to relieve the pressure, the only thing they can do is to cut into that limb, that extremity. It's not like, oh, just a little slice of the skin. They actually cut deep down into the muscle. And this is 100%, I don't think, ever recommended in the field by an untrained professional. You really, really, really want to get them to a doctor's care before it gets to this point. Because if they do need one of these procedures, you do not want to be doing this. You could cut an artery, you could cut too deep, you could cut nerves that will never heal. You definitely just don't want to do this blindly and with little to no instruction or official training. So those are just a few special considerations on pretty much the worst of the worst with fractures. So now let's just go through some of the locations and what the individual treatments would be. Starting from the top, your clavicle or your collarbone. So this can cause difficulty breathing in the lung that is underneath the damaged side or there's a very good possibility of some internal bleeding. Major arteries and nerve branches run along this bone so it's very important to check circulation, pulse, sensation, and motion. To splint it, you want to immobilize the affected arm, usually the side that received the force of impact, with a sling and swath it by tying the sling down to their side or folding their shirt up and over. 
and then you're either going to safety pin it in place or if they're wearing a button up you can maneuver the buttons so that the bottom half buttons to the top half and kind of makes like a natural sling. Your humerus, that is the long bone of your upper arm. So think up by your biceps and triceps attached directly to your shoulder. This is kind of difficult to cast. I personally had one of these when I was a kid and it was way up high by my shoulder. So they knew it was broken, but they couldn't really cast it because of the location. So instead, all they could do is put it in a sling. So that's pretty much the treatment you're going to try. You immobilize it with rigid support if you can from the shoulder, plus put it in some sort of sling and swath it to their body so that it doesn't swing around haphazardly and cause more injury. Your forearm is made up of two bones called the radius and the ulna. And these are the two bones that run from your wrist to your elbow. You never want to forcefully realign or reduce an angulated forearm fracture. And that is because of the fact that there are those two bones there. These are a little bit more complicated and they're kind of held in place by a very precise kind of tension pressure with all of the ligaments and muscles and all that surrounding fun stuff. So these are a bit more complicated and they're going to be a lot harder to kind of guesstimate where they should be to re, um, realign them. You want to splint it by immobilizing the forearm from the elbow to the hand with all forearm injuries and if the elbow is involved then you're going to include the humerus as well so basically their entire arm. If you have one you can splint it with a SAM splint or other rigid support. Use the uninjured side to measure and kind of form the shape that you want. You can practice on an uninjured person first and then take it to the uninjured side of the injured person to get the sizing just right and then apply the splint with the minimal amount of pain once you have the sizing and all that down. When a hand is involved you want to put something soft and squishy in it and curl the fingers around it naturally. So remember this is that position of function. You just want it to be in somewhat of a natural and relaxed and comfortable position since it's going to be a long time before those are moved again. Fingers and toes, you're pretty much just going to buddy tape them to the closest other finger or toe and or if you want you can use small sticks or if you have a finger splint or maybe popsicle sticks, something like that. You can line those up next to the finger and tape over it. But really the easiest is to just buddy splint or buddy tape it to the finger next to it. So your tibula and your fibula, this is your lower leg and this is kind of similar to your forearm. So there's those two bones again that kind of run next to each other. So this is usually a fracture that occurs with foot or lower leg entrapment. And to splint it, it's really easiest to use ski or hiking poles or sticks if you have them. A SAM splint can work, but you want something as rigid as possible to help provide that support. 
You can maybe use backpack supports, sleeping pads, selfie sticks, whatever you got. You're going to flex the knee slightly to add a little additional comfort and pad the void behind it. Remember, this is an area where there can be kind of gaps and those gaps really just mean that somewhere nearby usually there is a pressure point that is taking the brunt of all of that pressure and that's where you cause additional damage and um, some skin breakdown and just some not good stuff. So you want to pad the void and try and distribute that pressure throughout the entire area. Foot and ankle fractures you're going to immobilize with a foam pad. If you have a SAM splint use that or whatever you do have available. If foot rotation is an issue, like if the foot keeps falling out and causing more damage or pain, then you can buddy strap the feet together to support them. And obviously that's going to affect their evacuation abilities. But at this point, it's probably already pretty limited anyway, since it's on their foot and they need that to walk. Okay, now we're moving on to the big guns here, special larger fractures, your pelvis. So these are always a medical emergency and should be addressed in the primary survey. They are particularly dangerous because in addition to all those major veins and arteries that run through them, through the pelvic opening that is, there are also some internal organs in close proximity that kind of nest down in your pelvis. So the lower part of your GI tract, um, your bladder, your reproductive organs, all that kind of stuff is down in your pelvic ring. And they're all susceptible to damage from bone shards or just a sharp edge puncturing them. Some symptoms of a pelvic fracture are they're very extremely painful they're mostly, well, most of that pain is due to instability in the pelvis. Um, they might have some pelvic girdle crepitus. So remember that crunchy feeling when you are shifting or adjusting their hips. And often they're going to have signs of shock because this is one of those traumatic events that can cause shock. Treatment, you will anticipate and treat for shock. Keep them warm. Minimize rolling or other manipulation of the pelvic region. Remember now it's just a ring of bone that is kind of just sharply protruding in places where it should not. You want to stabilize using a manufactured or improvised pelvic wrap. Feet should be facing forward and pad between the legs to maintain kind of that natural distance and hip comfort and buddy wrap the legs together. You can use foam pads, coats, etc., whatever you have to make this wrap and the padding, and you probably will need to make and secure them to a litter of some sort. Provide spinal motion restriction when indicated, usually indicating a significant fall or trauma. Your femur is another large break that is a medical emergency. Your femur is a very large vascular bone and it has a lot of nerves that run along it. So there are a lot higher risks for nerve damage and bleeding involved with femur fractures. Also usually a risk of injury to the spinal cord because femurs take quite a bit of force to injure. 
any immediate treatment and immobilization are your priority concerns at this point and immediate evacuation is necessary. Also keep in mind this is one of those bones where you may see some fat embolism possibility because of all that hollow it's a hollow bone with a bunch of marrow in it and that comes out and causes a little fat embolism. Some symptoms you might see are obviously pain, swelling and discoloration, deformity of the femur, pain and tenderness in the mid shaft region of the femur, so like mid thigh area, external rotation of the feet and hips, and or shortening of the injured leg. You are once again going to anticipate and watch for shock with these. Treatment, remember your ABCDEs, so your priorities, keep them warm. Manually stabilize the injured leg and check distal CSM frequently. Splint it in place, support the ankle and foot, assess for shock again, and treat if you find anything, and evacuate rapidly. As a general rule of thumb, most fractures should be evacuated and evaluated. I only say most because remember those finger toe fractures can be treated as you see fit with the patient with what you have on hand. Mild breaks should be splinted and need to get to the doctor to cast them to ensure correct placement for healing because incorrect positioning can lead to lifelong pain, arthritis, and other complications that really just aren't worth it. Because even if you are only taking a few hours to get back to um, medical care and evaluation, that bone, whether it is in place or not, is going to start healing. Your body just immediately starts that rebuilding process. And so if it is a little bit out of place, your body don't really care. It's going to go about its business anyway. You could very possibly if you wanted to do this, which I 100% don't recommend, you can splint it or cast it in a weird position and it will eventually heal that way. It will be very painful and now your arm will be at a weird angle, but your body will heal, will heal itself however it sees fit. More severe fractures are definitely more likely to be very painful, but they can also be life-threatening. So these fractures of the bigger bones, open fractures, compound fractures, and those that are contaminated are high risk immediately. And as more time passes, the odds of complications increase drastically. Some of these complications are, remember we spoke about fat embolisms and blood embolisms, but also the usual culprits of infection, sepsis, internal bleeding, there's the internal organ puncture possibility is always there, immobilization from paralysis, shock, and lifelong pain, arthritis, and other mobility complications that come with incorrect healing. Bones that are used for bearing weight need to be reset properly to establish healing in the proper place. So remember I said that they will just start restructuring ASAP. This is definitely more important when it comes to weight-bearing or load-bearing bones because if your arm is out of place, that's one thing, but if it's your leg and you're putting your entire body weight on it every day, that's going to be a heck of a lot more painful and you're 
going to notice it a lot sooner and for a lot longer. There is so much more I can say about fractures, but I'm going to save you all of the lessons. Just a few more things here. Remember that fractures don't just break straight across. They can occur at odd angles. They can be a spiral around the bone. There can be shards that are completely detached and just kind of floating there. Something that is kind of common with kids, they can get a green stick fracture which is where the bones, since they're more flexible, they fracture on one side and bend on the other. So it's kind of an incomplete fracture, but it kind of splits the bone down the middle a little bit too. And that other side just kind of takes the extra weight and bends instead of breaking. They can also get fractures along the growth plate of their bone, which can stunt the growth of that limb forever. That's very important to have your growth plate for continued growing, obviously, so lengthening of that bone. And if it has a fracture and that's disrupted, it can just halt growth in that limb right then and there, regardless of how tall the other leg gets to be. Obviously, this is not going to be like super drastic. I think there are some regulations in your body so that you don't have a limb that's a foot shorter than another one but it doesn't really take that much before you notice that inconsistency and develop some pain and problems with it even if you are a child. No matter how you choose to treat a fracture you want to move quickly to get to definitive care as soon as possible. And as with all other splints and bandages I've talked about, make sure to check circulation, sensation, and movement of the limb before and after placement of any dressings and redo them as needed. Remember to assess circulation, sensation, and motion, that CSM. You're going to check for circulation, so pulses and capillary refill, sensation to light touch and pinprick pain and motion if they can move the area or extremity, maybe some grip and foot strengths, and also you're going to be looking at skin warmth and color, and you're going to take all of these findings together and compare them to the other, hopefully uninjured side. That will ideally give you closer to what their baseline should be so you know if that's normal. Are they just someone whose feet run cold? Are they someone who normally has pretty weak pulses in their feet? Stuff like that, it is very helpful to look at the other side and see how it should be to be able to tell what is wrong now. One more quick thing before I wrap this episode up, I wanted to talk a second about pain medications. I honestly cannot remember if I have talked about these yet. I know some sources recommend that you keep some stronger pain meds like hydrocodone or oxycodone, Norco, something like that in your first aid kit. I am going to highly recommend against this. This is very dangerous and potentially fatal. First of all, you should not be taking these medications without explicit permission from a doctor. If you have a prescription and a reason to take them and you do so on a daily basis, then that is up to you. It is considered one of your daily prescriptions and that is a whole nother conversation. 
but just having them for the sake of having them in your first aid kit is definitely not recommended. You do not have that doctor's um, advice. You don't have their dosing. You don't really have any guidance from them on the necessity of taking those or the effectiveness. And additionally, you should not be having these medications sitting around if maybe they're an old prescription for you or if they're somebody else's prescription, not only because of the risk of allergies if they're somebody else's, but also old medications that are sitting around should not just be taken any significant time later. Plus, medications like this, like narcotics and heavy-duty pain meds, are very dangerous because they slow everything down. Yes, there's the addictive side of it. People always focus on that and that is true. But also, especially if you are opioid naive and not used to taking them and all of a sudden you take a dose that maybe someone doesn't think is that high, but for you, since you haven't been taking it, it is high enough to suppress your respiration until you die. And this is not even being, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not being dramatic. This is literally what opioids do. They slow your digestion. That's why you get constipated. They slow your pulse. They slow everything. That's why you get sleepy. And they slow your respirations to the point where you are not taking in enough oxygen and your brain is kind of doped up on these medications so it doesn't register it. So it's not like you can think, oh, I'll... I'll be fine. I'll just breathe faster. No, your brain doesn't know what's happening. So you basically sedate yourself to breathlessness and suffocate from the inside, essentially. So that was kind of an ugly way to say it. I kind of butchered that a little bit, but just wanted to put that out there since we are talking about fractures that I personally do not recommend taking narcotics or anything like that out with you in your first aid kit unless it is explicitly prescribed to you from your provider and you have talked to him about it and you have discussed the possibilities of what can happen in the backcountry with it and also what happens in a new environment with it. So I will get down off of my soapbox on that now. Just don't do it, kids. You don't have to. You can take ibuprofen and Tylenol until you get back to care. This is why medical professionals count your respirations before and after they give you pain medications. And also they have something on hand called Narcan that will reverse the side effects of it. And it can save your life, but sometimes you're too far gone. Not trying to scare you straight here or anything like that. Just putting that information out there because I don't believe I have yet. So... Anyway, that was all I had for fractures, and that actually wraps up our musculoskeletal little section here. So next week, we will be moving on to bigger and more exciting things. Thanks again for joining me, and make sure to check out the show notes for that tip sheet and the newsletter for additional resources and information, as well as go find me on Insta and give me a rate and review, please, if you are enjoying this. And if you do feel so inclined, please tell me what you're liking about it. And I will see you next week.